right, everyone, welcome to another episode of One of 200, the independent international and New Zealand politics podcast. Uh, I'm the single host here at the moment, uh, Branko Machetic. Unfortunately, we were going to have a second one owing to my screw up uh, and the, the many shifting time zones that we deal here at One of 200. We, we were unable to, to uh, well, really, I was unable to, to schedule this properly. So we'll see. We may be joined by mystery uh, co-host later. Um, but for now, I'm very excited uh, to have a great guest here to talk to us about the, the French election, uh, which is now heading into the second round of voting, the, the decisive round. Uh, I have here my colleague, David Broder from Jacobin. He's the, the European editor at Jacobin. And he is also a historian of French and Italian communism. He, he's written a really great book about um, uh, uh, the rise of, of Berlusconi in, in Italian politics. Uh, David, how are, you, how are you going? Yeah, very good. Thanks. And thanks for having me on. Oh well, th- thank you very much for coming. And you're you're right in the in the belly of the beast. You are uh, in in Germany, uh, right? So you're you're very much observing this uh, a lot closer than than a lot of our audiences. Yeah, for sure. I was actually in France during the 2017 election, and I kind of thought of visiting during this one, but the polling was a bit uh, grim, so I didn't. But in the end, the result was probably less bad than uh, expected. Right. Well, I mean, let's let's get into to some of those differences because I think one of the main shifts between that, that election and, and this one, even though the the, the left wing candidate Jean Luc Mélenchon ended up losing, unfortunately, uh, he did a lot better. Right? Um, can we just begin by if, if you give us a sense of uh, the, the you know were the results of that first round what you expected and what did you think of of Mélenchon's performance overall? Was it what you predicted? Was it better than expected? Was it, was it perhaps uh, disappointing? Well, um, of course, ultimately the result's disappointing because um, the, the two for the final round are Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent, and uh, sort of neoliberal pork has governed from the centre-right. Uh, his governments have had ministers from the traditional right-wing party, uh, the Republicans. Uh, and then he's up against Marine Le Pen in the second round, and she only beat uh, Mélenchon to the second round by by just one percent. Yeah. Um, the and that means that we have a second round which is on much more right wing terrain than if Mélenchon had been there and been able to talk about you know his issues like uh, about ecology, about lowering the pension age, that kind of thing. Um, however, Mélenchon's result twenty two percent. Uh, should be seen in the context of of quite what a poor uh, position he was in, kind of, let's say, towards the end of 2021, um, where you have this very fragmented uh, picture on the left wing of uh, French politics. There were five candidates from the left this time around, uh, as against three last time in 2017. Uh, and also, like, even though Macron's government has has been probably more um, traditionally right-wing than we might have expected in 2017 when he said he was neither left nor right, or in fact both left and right, he said. Um, so, you know, even though the, his government's been um, very uh, repressive, authoritarian, probably more uh, nakedly like right-wing on kind of Islamophobia and things than might have been expected, um, the left looked in very poor shape. Uh, and Mélenchon was polling only about 10% towards the end of last year. Um, there was a lot of debate about whether there should be a united left candidate. It didn't come to anything, mainly because the other parties basically just wanted Mélenchon to not run. Um, but in the end, his campaign had a dynamic all of its own. Uh, and so he ended up with 22%. And overall, the, 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 all of the forces to the left of Macron together uh, got 32%, which is more than 2017 when it added up 27%. Uh, and also it was about as big as the right-wing bloc, the far-right bloc, I mean to say, um, of Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, who was a new candidate from the far-right this time. So basically we've got a pretty even three-way division of the political field between um, sort of neoliberal hawkishness with Macron, the far-right with Le Pen, and uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon at the head of a, a, a left-wing space, which is really uh, hegemonized by the radical left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was a very strong campaign by him. And hopefully in the, the parliamentary election in June, uh, no matter what happens in the presidential runoff, hopefully France Insoumise, his, his party, can, uh, can really uh, establish itself as a stronger uh, oppositional force. Hmm. Can I ask you, uh, how important was the, the, the split among the, the left, the radical left, to, to um, denying, I guess, Mélenchon, you know, uh, uh, the victory in that first round? 
Well, um, I mean, ultimately, uh, he fell only 1% short. So if you look at parties like the Green Party, which got uh, 4.5%, or uh, the Socialists, which, despite the name, is a very neoliberal pro-business party, uh, they got about 2%. Uh, I think really the decisive thing was the Communist Party. Um, in 2017, uh, the Communist Party did support Mélenchon uh, and um, its, its activists were very important to the campaign. Although the party has declined from its historic highs, it still does have uh, like you know many, well, tens of thousands of active members and they were a, a good resource. Uh, previously, this time the Communists stood against Mélenchon and uh, they got, you know, they only got two and a half percent, but it's it's a basically uh, voters who very well could have voted for Mélenchon and didn't. Uh, of course, some would say, well, there was also a split on the far right of politics because, as I said, Eric Zemmour, who's like a, a TV pundit, um, in many ways even more right wing and aggressive about kind of civilizational discourse than uh, Le Pen, he took uh, some votes from her. Uh, although, as with the left, uh, you know, he's mobilizing slightly different types of voters to Le Pen. And also, as I said, the, the, the total far right share and the total left wing share were very similar. So I think, you know, uh, there's basically, I mean, since also since the uh, since the election, since last Sunday, when we find out that, you know, Melanchon wouldn't make it. Um, I think it's been a very embarrassing moment for the Greens, the communists, because really they are seen to have you know it's like basically whatever their differences with Mélenchon you know would it be better to have him in the second round rather than Le Pen uh, of course and because they did quite poorly anyway I think they're in a very demoralized moment which also kind of helps the prospect although it's far from certainly going to play out well but I think it helps uh, France Insoumise to be in a strong position when it comes to talking about like you know whether there'll be some sort of pact for the parliamentary election. Right. Well, before we move on to, to the, the election as it stands now, um, just your final thoughts on, on Melanchon. You know, he, he did lose, but, but what do you see as the, the, the legacy or the significance of this campaign? Well, I think um, one very important, I, th I think it's, it's probably easiest to understand it in, in uh, international comparison. Like if we think of the uh, Bernie Sanders campaigns in the in the primaries in the U.S. Democrats, or uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. In neither of those cases did they actually ever capture the lead. You know, even though Corbyn was leader, he never had like the MPs with him. The party was never really in the hands of the left, uh, and obviously Sanders never like led the the Democrats. Um, whereas in the French case, what we've seen is that the historic parties of the neoliberalized centre left have been defeated and marginalized. Mm -hmm. And Mélenchon has built a, a, they call it a movement, not a party, uh, France Insoumise, uh, which now is easily the biggest force in the left-wing space, uh, which mobilized many uh, tens of thousands of activists, uh, which is also the only part, you know, Mélenchon has a terrible reputation in the international left as like a chauvinist and a nationalist and, and so on. But really it's striking the contrast with uh, the way it's seen in the French left. I mean, even people who've been very critical of Mélenchon in the past, from within France Insoumise and, and on the far left, can see that France Insoumise is the party that stands up to authoritarianism, stands up to Islamophobia. Um, um, Mélenchon had a, an enormous vote in, uh, in, in all of the main cities, but particularly in working class neighborhoods with high immigrant populations. Um, people may know there's you know suburbs of Paris with with large immigrant populations like Bobigny, uh, Saint-Denis, uh, Saint, uh, Saint like more than 60% of the vote. So uh, you asked what his legacy is. I mean, he did say that he's not going to run for president again. I would say that that has moved from being certain to not entirely certain, and he remains an important leader for the for the movement. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think. You know, while again it uh, it is a defeat, and uh, you know the far right is even stronger now than five years ago. So, in lots of ways, the picture is bleak. But I think even in very difficult circumstances, he's built a much stronger uh, pole of attraction on the radical left than any of the other foreign examples we could care to mention. 
Well, I mean, that's encouraging news that he may run again. I mean, I think, well, he's he's 70 now, right? So he would be 75 if he ran again, which in the grand scheme of things, you compare him to the United States, uh, spring chicken, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, also because, of course, uh, because he promised, because um, Mélenchon wants to get rid of the presidency within the first half of his term. Okay, so it's right. not be, uh, so old when he uh, finished. If <laughs> Well, okay. Let's let's get into this uh, the second round of voting now. You know, I, I I imagine like many of our listeners have sort of not followed the French election particularly closely. It's sort of been in the background for me a little bit um, beyond you know seeing it as a your proverbial choice of the the kick in the balls versus a punch in the face. Uh, is kind of how how it looks at the moment. Um, uh, and I actually I actually just did one of these quizzes that they ask you. Here's a statement by Macron or Le Pen. You figure out which one of them uh, said it, and I did dismally. I, I got less than fifty percent, <laughs> which shows you how how bad the choices here are. But give us um, a sense of how this campaign has gone. The election campaign has gone since the first round of voting, and I guess um, you know what are the different kind of coalitions, at least as they're shaping up for for each respective candidate. Well, so I think one of the very interesting factors in this election which is also a big difference in 20 to, compared to 2017, is the uh, collapse of the main historic party of the centre-right, uh, which is today called the Republicans, and it's the party that draws its tradition from like Charles de Gaulle. Um, and their party, uh, their candidate, Valérie Pécresse, got under 5% of the vote, uh, which also meant that she lost, uh, you know, she won't get her campaign refunded, so the party's in dire financial straits. She uh, she did an appeal for crowdfunding saying she's 5 million euros in personal debt. Um, so I think that has an interesting effect on the second round also in the sense that while already in the first round, the old right-wing base already split between Macron and uh, Zemmour in particular and, and Le Pen. So basically because um, Zemmour uh, has very extremist positions, like, uh, for example, like uh, he's an advocate of or a, you know a tenant of a great replacement theory, claiming there's a plan to replace the white Christian population with Muslims. So he's very extreme in that way. But also, actually, on his economic program, he's much more conventionally neoliberal than Le Pen, and Zemmour did uh, very well in some of the most, for example, in like the 16th arrondissement of Paris, which is like between uh, Saint-Cloud and the Eiffel Tower, so like very bourgeois areas where the far right wouldn't normally do well. Uh, so he only got 7% nationally, but uh, in places like, like there or the Beaux-Cartiers of Lyon, like bourgeois areas where wealthy voters who wouldn't have touched Le Pen voted for a far right candidate. So his vote, he's called for a vote for Le Pen, the polling suggests his vote will fold into hers. So that's really her next big chunk of support. Um, but the fact that um, the fact that Mélenchon came third uh, and easily in third place, unlike in 2017, uh, means that there's a certain tendency for the the, the two uh, runoff candidates to try and appeal to his base. Uh, and basically, you know, like Le Pen is very much like, well, don't vote for the president of the rich. You know, vote for me. And of course, you know, because the Front National, or as it's now called Rassemblement National, her party, because it's never been in government, even at a regional level or, or even in big cities, it's quite easy for them to kind of speak, so speak uh, out of both sides or, you know, speak kind of different to different groups all at once in an incoherent way. So kind of, uh, yeah, promise a lot to different uh, social groups. And I mean, whereas uh, Macron, of course, is now unlike in 2017, is running on his record because uh, he's been in power for five years now. Uh, we've seen what an anti, anti-social uh, president he is. And, um, you know, I mean, one of, the, one of the key issues in this election now is that um, Macron says he's going to, or, or promised before the, the first round, he's going to re- raise the re- retirement age from 62 to 65. He already tried to uh, change the retirement age during his first term. And now he says, like, as a concession to Mélenchon supporters, he'll only raise it to 64, but he'll still raise it. Um, that, that should get so, those people on board, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think, like, also, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of this kind of, uh, I mean, of course, like, in, of course, I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it will be even worse if Le Pen 
wins than if Macron does, just at the level of emboldening all sorts of uh, far-right groups, including within the state apparatus, kind of openly repressive, even more than under Macron, who has himself broken up some, um, you know, like groups who do legal defense of, uh, like the collective against Islamophobia in France and so on. Yeah, I mean, of course, Le Pen's rule would be worse and it would empower all sorts of awful forces. Uh, but I mean, I think the problem in this election is kind of like, it's like to take the pension thing, you know, if the campaign is against Le Pen is on the level of like, oh, she's like soft on Putin, or like she risks the future of the EU. You know, a lot of people aren't going to feel that that affects them in such a total and direct way as, uh, you know, their pension, you know, having to work several more years, right? And like, actually, I mean, I don't just mean, oh, like, you know, like, um, you know, kind of white workers in small towns. I mean, like, uh, the in 2017, in the most, uh, um, in the, in like the say, like suburbs of Paris with, with like uh, majority minority uh, populations, the turnout was very low. So actually, paradoxically, like the groups who are most directly targeted by Le Pen's um, chauvinism are actually some of the weakest groups for Macron, hmm. just because the turnout is expected to be low. Um, so yeah, I mean, like compared to 2017, um, Macron has a far less of an advantage, but still most polls, it's kind of, he's ahead probably 55 to, to 45. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, well uh, you know, before we go a little deeper, you know, people listening may not be super familiar with, with what Macron has actually done in power. Mm. Obviously the, the, the dominant narrative about him is that uh, he's neither left nor right. He's of the center. He's, he's treating that middle ground, balancing these various forces and kind of helped to save France, uh, I guess, from the far right last time when, when, when he was up against Le Pen. Can you give people uh, just a, a brief overview of, of what he's actually done in power and why it is that that you know people on the left are so disillusioned with him you know that, that they see him as such a um a poor alternative uh uh to to the far right uh policy program of, of Le Pen. Okay well firstly uh, as I alluded to before in the 2017 race it was very much presented as kind of liberal Europeanism. Uh, Macron, who'd been the finance minister under the previous uh, centre-left government under the, the Socialist Party, uh, although even then was an a, a, a advocate of, of, sort of neoliberal reforms. But um, I think his image in 2017 was, was much more kind of liberal, green, like his party is like a, a startup. So kind of business oriented, but but certainly didn't seem like a uh, or didn't present himself as a as a strongly conservative or right wing figure. Um, and at that time as well, uh, certainly before the twenty seventeen election, uh, Le Pen was more um, to dabbled with the idea of like Euro exit. So that seemed like a very strong contrast between them. Um, and I think as president. Um, Macron has ruled uh, from the right, also in the specific sense that his prime ministers and uh, his ministerial team, while drawn from various parties, have overwhelmingly been from the Republicans, which is, as I said, the traditional right-wing party. Um, so uh, there's two types of way I, I, I think that, you know, as you say, he, uh, he's alienated the left or white people aren't willing to turn out for him. Uh, one is that he's... Uh, mounted very severe um, attacks on the French welfare states, in particular the pension system, basically trying to break the uh, the, um, uh, the the better pensions that a lot of public sector workers have, including notably rail workers. Um, and that was, you know, immediately before the pandemic, there were some very major and protracted strikes over that. Um, and also, of course, there was the... Uh, your listeners may remember the, the Yellow Vests protests in 2018-19, which were protests which started uh, in opposition to a, a fuel tax rise 
and were mainly like protests of like people who have to drive to work, but then became, uh, had took on a much more kind of general uh, kind of democratic character and criticism of the effects of green transition being offloaded onto uh, working people. I think what's really interesting about that moment as well as it links to the, to the second uh, area of policies, which is very right wing, is that faced with uh, social movements, Macron has chosen to reinterpret them as being about immigration and like that that's the fundamental issue, like working class people um, are really their grievances are fundamentally about like identity. Um, so after the, uh, the Yellow Vest movement, he launched this kind of national conversation, but like about immigration and identity. And clearly he's been angling to have Le Pen as his, like he would rather fight Le Pen around those issues uh, rather than rather than the candidate from the left. Um, also faced with uh, protest movements, um, this government has been incredibly repressive uh, and far more so even than previous center-right governments. Um, so in the Gilets Jaunes, uh, the Yellow Vest protests, as I say, which um, had like kind of regular um, protests in Paris for very many months, as well as like local, uh, local, local ones, um, you know, uh, literally dozens of people lost like a hand or an eye. Uh, we saw this uh, sort of um, uh, harsh uh, policing and the in fact the government itself also allying with police unions who basically called to have less accountability uh, the government passed a law which banned protesters from filming police um, and so as well as this repressive way of handling uh, dissent um, there's also a very strong and and uh, kind of class contempt even in the way macron talks about his government and so like um you know there's some famous incidents where like uh he um he said like um uh he said like to an unemployed person like on camera like oh you just need to go across the street and get yourself a job uh or he said like uh, when he was launching this new like startup like uh, it's sort of like it was like it's like a it's like a training college for like startup creators <laughs> so start up for startups yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's all called like hubs and stuff. And also it's all in English uh, to, you know, because it's seen as modern. Um, and then he said that the, he said that, so that this startup creators, like hub was uh, put in like a, an old train station building. And uh, Macron said, uh, a station, the train station is an incredible place uh, because you come across people who are nothing. And he didn't say who have nothing. He said, who are nothing. Uh, and so this kind of very, um, so I think it's kind of a mix of the, the actual specific policies that have been enacted uh, and then the like open, and then his, his like very per sort of perceived kind of arrogance and the talking about how the French people have always needed a monarch with which he obviously sort of identifies, uh, but it was this like very strong uh, class uh, contempt. Uh, then the other the other thing which should be mentioned is the way in which his government has um, demonized uh, Muslims, talking about Islamic separatism, the communities who don't fit into the republic. Uh, as I said before, uh, banned the main association which fights against Islamophobia. Um, there was a um, there was like a, a, a um, there was also an incident in uh, um, well incident is in a, a terrorist attack in um, October uh, 2019 in uh, Bayonne, uh, like a, a guy with a gun um, attacked a mosque and shot two, uh, shot several people and two people were hospitalized who were like, you know, people in like, you know, they're 75 years old or something. Um, and then um, basically like France and Sumise, Mélenchon's party joined the protest in defense of the mosque afterwards and like against Islamophobia. Whereas, like the government and the media, so allied to it, like harshly, like kind of demonized the mosque itself, saying, "Oh, it's got ties to like the Muslim Brotherhood," which is always, which is a, you know, a movement that exists in a lot of countries, and obviously in Egypt was in government briefly. Uh, but it's kind of in France, it's very much painted as like uh, Salafist and terroristic. Um, so I think like. While a lot of people talk about how Marine Le Pen 
has sort of moderated and normalized and gone mainstream, a lot of what's going on there is that the mainstream has itself moved so far right that she seems relatively more normal rather than that she's actually changed uh, her positions. Um, and so like even in this, uh, even since the first round of this election, we've seen Macron say like the old uh, Republican front, so which used to be like a sort of is a, a notional kind of anti-fascist front of all the other parties. He says, well, that doesn't exist anymore. And it's kind of true, but it's also that he's brought it to that because the kind of the specific ways in which you could say Le Pen really doesn't belong mm. are, are, are much less clear now. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a uh, classic, classic story, I guess, is the, the, the centre kind of paving the way for the far right. Um, uh, okay, well, uh, I have exciting news. Uh, we have been joined by our mystery host uh, in the middle of the, the broadcast. Uh, Jan Tattenberg is, is back to talk to us about the French election. Unfortunately, uh, he came a little late entirely because of me, uh, because I <laughs> am poor at uh, uh, managing the different time zones. But I'm glad he made it. Jan, how are you going? Good, thanks. Uh, that's uh, great, to, great to have you here. Um, okay, well, uh, I want to ask you guys both some kind of broader questions about um, uh, what this election means and what, what could be coming next for uh, French, French politics. Uh, first of all, I mean, what does the victory of either candidate potentially mean for, for French policy and uh, foreign policy? And particularly, I'm thinking of here uh, the, the war in Ukraine, which is still going nearly two months later now. Um, you know, both... I've actually been kind of pleasantly surprised that Macron, despite all the kind of far right uh, 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 winking and, and 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 kind of policy he's he's carried out, has been a little more sensible uh, on this particular issue than I think other Western leaders. Um, let's start with you, Jan. Uh, I mean, what, what does it mean? I mean, is there going to be a major difference in in how France may respond to this war, depending on if, if Le Pen wins versus Macron? And what, what might happen, um, you know, in, in either case? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, the, the story that made the rounds um, about, about Le Pen is that her campaign had to, once the invasion was launched, in panic, destroy um, brochures which they were going to distribute, which show her shaking hands with Putin, which were supposed to show her kind of foreign policy bona fides, um, but all of a sudden that became more of a liability than it might already have been. So she relies on she relies on financial support. I think she has a loan from a. This came out in the disclosures for the um, for the presidential election. She has a loan from Hungarian banks. She's previously had loans from Russian banks. I think there's always this question as to to what extent she could maintain a campaign without these kind of financial resources, there is um, always the question to what extent, not for her, but for, for parts of the French right, the kind of state we see in Russia is potentially the kind of state that they aspire to. So for instance, for Nice, who of course, this time aligned herself with Zemmour, um, but who Marie Le Pen's niece, um, who is always the, the kind of looming future of the French far right, I guess. Um, believes that the kind of state that Putin has created, so an assertive national state, an assertive kind of, um, you know, Christian state, a kind of state that is illiberal and um, has for itself a civilizational vision almost, is a, is a blueprint for, for France that the far right might, might look to build. Um, what that means for foreign policy she wants to exit NATO still. I don't know if that demand has been softened in the last couple of months, whether that really would be something she would, she would pursue or whether, whether that's now an unsustainable demand and not, I think that's, I, I, for me personally, I think that's difficult to say right now. Um, for Macron, yeah, he loves the, the military cosplay, right? Um, he loves to see himself not just as the kind of um, pseudo autocrat or pseudo monarch, but at the same time as a kind of, you know, as the commander of the French armed forces, right? And as the, as the guy who ultimately makes the decisions, right? Who has his hand on the button. 
Um, and he has been, I think, the kind of figure who through per, perhaps potentially entirely because of his own ego, but also because of his belief in a, in a Europe at peace, um, which of course is a, is a very partial and very, um, very ideological kind of view because Europe, there's always a sense for people in the center that, oh, Europe has been at peace since the Second World War. That of course is not true. There was war in the Balkans, there's been a war in Ukraine for nearly the last 10 years. Um, to what extent that is a narrative you can sustain upon false interrogation? I don't really believe that to be true, but there is that sense, I think, for someone like Macron, that if he could mediate, if he could restore peace, or indeed if he could help deliver to Ukraine the weapons it needs to win the war, that that would make his reputation in a way that I think nothing for him um, domestically could quite do the same thing. I don't know if that's psychologizing him too much and David will correct me if that's that's wrong, but that's my sense, certainly. Yeah, what, what do you think, David? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, well, okay. I think with Le Pen, it's very difficult to know in the sense that while the French president has a very broad uh, range of range of powers, and obviously, particularly including foreign policy, I think uh, I think the most likely scenario, if she should win, which is itself unlikely, would be she'd have some sort of um, you know like a parliamentary majority and prime minister and other ministers who probably won't be from her own political family, um, and. So I, I think it would be unlikely for her to, I, th I think it would be very unlikely for her to lead France out of NATO. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think um, uh, if, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a, a more, um, it's possible that like France, based on her leadership, would take a less uh, important role in the overall European response. I mean, I agree with uh, Jan about the the importance of like how Macron would like to like sort of describe the international stage. But like, you know, if we think like just before the war actually broke out, uh, when when uh, Macron was um, you know having these like hours long phone calls with uh, Putin, the the ultimate upshot of that was kind of that he would somehow negotiate for Putin to speak with Biden. France isn't really a world power in that sense. And, you know, like Macron has spoken a lot throughout his first term and including uh, France currently has the presidents of the European Union. Like he's spoken a lot about this uh, idea for a European army, but it's totally pie in the sky. Like the foreign policy of the countries is totally different, particularly if we look at other conflicts like Libya, where even Italy and France are on different sides, uh, never mind like Turkey and Greece, Greece being a European mem uh, Euro mem European Union member and Turkey isn't, of course. So I, I, mean, I think like there's a lot of talk and aspiration. And, you know, also we could look at things like uh, Macron announcing a, a like a French a space force and that France would be the first like real, real military parent space, which is just like completely absurd uh, grandstanding. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, I think ultimately um, the, you know, I think uh, in your question earlier, you're right, Franco, in the sense that I think he, like there's, you know, for example, like when uh, Macron has, um, you know, for example, disputed the, the, the application of the word genocide to the Russian war. So I mean, clearly he's trying to like retain the margins that France could play some sort of mediating role. I mean, to, to just go back to the to the far right, I think people in, um, people like, uh, you know, I think Zimor's campaign really was hurt by the, Putin ties. Mm. It's a little hard to say because ultimately the war doesn't seem to have affected the result very much overall. Like it doesn't seem to have hurt the pen, basically. And also, of course, we, we had the recent president of the president of the Hungarian election where the opposition seemed very animated by the idea that they could tie Orban to Putin and it like didn't work at all. Mm. But I, I think it's really, I think it's the problem. I think the thing is the kind of people whose votes it would motivate like liberals and greens who were hating on Mélenchon for supposedly being soft Putin. I mean, they're not people who are sh shift, they're not swing voters anyway. 
I think it's not a key thing. Uh, of course, the war did have an effect, probably its main effect on this election has been the uh, inflation and the increase in energy prices. Um, so I think there's probably more room for Le Pen to take a line of, of kind of like, you know, not our problem, nothing to do with us, and sort of posture as a defender of, of motorists and so on. And actually another aspect of that is that she has, um, she's called for a massive uh, expansion of um, nuclear uh, plants. So, you know, those issues are kind of somehow connected to the war, but not directly linked to the you know, taking of sides. Yeah, interesting you say that. I mean, Can definitely I... we've seen that among the right in the US, right, which is uh, not not everywhere, but certainly the the, the stance of, well, look, ultimately the, the uh, main problem for Americans here, American security is the, is the financial effects, the economic effects of this war. And so therefore we should, you know, for that reason, kind of, kind of stay out of it. Um, uh, well, speaking of Le Pen, you know, we take the comparison of Trump in the United States. Obviously, that was a very scary moment, him, him winning. Um, at the same time, uh, we very quickly saw that there were limits to even, even with uh, congressional majorities, Trump was not able to um, make the kind of, of shifts that he, he wanted, although they certainly, uh, the GOP, did its, its, its main thing and, and did a massive giveaway to, to, the, to the very richest, of course. But there were limits to, to how much Trump could do. I wonder, you know, if Le Pen wins, uh, do we, at this point, can we say uh, what she would be capable of doing or, or, you know, what she'd want to do? And is she able to actually pull that off? Or are there constraints within the French political system that would kind of hem her in? Either of you guys, uh, whoever wants to, to jump in on that one first. Well, I mean, I, I have to say, I think it's also part of the critique of, of, of Macron, right? Which is like he's turned the state of emergency after the like 2015 terrorist attacks into like a permanent part of normal law. Uh, and he's introduced these this uh, global security bill, which makes police far less accountable. Um, and, you know, these are also powers that a far-right government can use and which a police force, which we can imagine will vote heavily for Le Pen, will be emboldened by. Um, never mind the, uh, the, the way the whole political climate has shifted in a way which makes this easier. Um, I mean, of course, we, we also don't... Well, I mean, of course, compared to the United States, uh, in a way, it's difficult to make the comparison, particularly because, you know, as someone who's lived in France, but not in the US, I find what's going on in France scarier <laughs> and worse. But of course, the overall level of like, you know, the, the level of violence in society is lower and the mobilization of armed groups in France is, is, is less. So, you know, we can imagine, of course, that um, as in other uh, cases where the far right has returned to power, including in Italy, where like the fact that the, the uh, even a, even a very mainstreamed far right in government can give a lot more freedom to more ever to more like militant and extreme right subcultures, um, and of course, I mean a big uh, question is uh, which still remains is you know even if Le Pen wins, which as I say I think is still is very unlikely. Um, you know, the, the, the parliamentary elections in June could produce a parliament which is very different and which would, you know, have a lot of uh, constraints on her uh, authority. Um, in general, uh, because since, um, I think since uh, 2012 was the first time, the, uh, no, sorry, uh, 2007 was the first time that the parliamentary elections immediately follow the presidential election rather than being in different years. So that's tended to have the effect that the presidential election is then kind of ratified or reproduced in the parliamentary election a couple of months later. But in general, uh, historically, uh, the uh, Le Pen's party has like only ever elected like a few dozen MPs at most, and has generally been very bad in this style of election. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine that she'd be able to win a parliamentary majority starting from almost nothing, but uh, we'll see. Right. In fact, maybe we won't see. <laughs> yeah, I think if I I just want to, I I might just very briefly explain what David means by saying that the 
um, presidential result might be ratified um, in the in the legislative elections. So the sense is that a president might be given, quote unquote, by the voters, a majority in the in parliament in order to push through their agenda. Um, that that's certainly the narrative that the pundits love. You know, gotta give the president the majority so that they can implement their agenda. But at the same time, I remember. Um, I remember this debate coming up around the big labor market reform a few years ago, that there are mechanisms in the constitution which allow the president effectively via decree to implement mm -hmm. even kind of wide ranging economic reforms. And of course that was contentious at the time, to what extent that would still be the case given the style of government of Macron, I don't know. And whether you certainly, I mean, it might, and you might end up in a, in a way that is similar to, to the kind of um, end of the second Obama presidency, whereby rule is by decree, mm -hmm. which means that um, any, any kind of gains um, for, for a Le Pen presidency would perhaps be more straightforwardly overturned than if they were implemented by law, but at the same time wouldn't limit kind of the damage that she could do very acutely. That's not, of course, to compare the politics of Le Pen and Obama, only the kind of um, parliamentary configuration. I think. Can for, I ask David two questions? Oh yeah, yeah, please, yeah, yeah, and then I will. I'll <laughs> follow that with, a, with a final. Yeah, I was yeah, keen. Please. I was keen on your opinion. Sorry, I came really. No, late no, no, because, brilliant. Um, and I was. I my first answer was really rambling because it's like just gone six a.m. here. Um, <laughs> so I'm nursing the. So I'm nursing the coffee here. Um, right. I was wondering. So you you mentioned. And I think that makes that makes a lot of sense to me that um, Zimur's campaign didn't do very. Zimur's campaign was the one campaign that it seems really was damaged by the invasion of Ukraine. And I wonder, you know, there was this kind of inter far right um, struggle to a degree. There was a sense that you know Le Pen's niece, who is seen as the kind of future of the French far right, she went and campaigned for Zimur, um, perhaps in part because she fears that her aunt will not give up the reins of the established party apparatus readily, even if she doesn't win. Um, to what extent do you think the fact that Zimur's campaign was hurt by this election then kind of has knock-on effects for the future balance of the, the far right? Because what you can imagine is that somebody like, you know, Maria Marechal could bridge the gap between the kind of bourgeois bloc that Zimur has, the kind of bourgeois far right, the kind of more working class rural far right of the Rassemblement National, and then also kind of bring in the, you know, the incredibly conservative kind of Catholic voters, right? To what extent is that kind of threat looming for after this election headed off by the simple fact that she aligned herself with someone who did incredibly poorly? Well, I don't think that it um, will hurt Marichal, particularly that Zimor did badly because ultimately her strategy also kind of relies on him not being a viable candidate like ultimately her perspective was always on 2027 after the 2017 election um you know um in which uh for national as it was then did quite poorly in the second round got like 34 percent of the vote and uh, at the time, Le Pen sacked her advisor, Florian Philippot, who was like seen or rather scapegoated as the architect of its kind of workerist, Euroscept, like, you know, pro-Euro exit turn. Um, and there was a certain discomfort among the base of the party that it had like softened too much on its kind of identitarian themes. So there's a more candidate. And also since then, we've seen some attempts by uh, Le Pen to try and win over votes from the Republicans, like you say, the kind of more bourgeois right, certainly in regions like in, in the southeast of France in particular, where the Front National's own base has always been a bit more middle class, devout Catholic, more kind of returnees from French Algeria, rather than the sort of stereotype like northern ex-industrial workers. Um, and, but again, like in those kind of regional and local elections, Le Pen never really made it. She, she like in some in the regional elections last year, they won the in in the further southeast region, uh, which is like uh, Paquet, it's like Marseille and Nice and so on. Like uh, the Rassemblement National, Le Pen's party, they won the first round, then lost the runoff. 
So Zamor's candidacy is somehow the product of this. It's like trying to answer the strategic problem. Like the, the Rassemblement National, while it has a big vote among workers, it has not succeeded in creating a genuinely transversal left-right block of like workers plus petty bourgeois. So Zamor's strategy and the one which uh, Marischal, Mary Marischal has always advocated uh, with her convention of the right in 2019 is rather than sort of a generic neither left nor right uh, populism around identitarian themes, what we need to do is reorganize the right wing space under nationalist and identitarian and Catholic leadership. So it's much more oriented towards capturing or subduing the Republicans. Um, and so I think even though um, even though um, Zemmour did badly in the sense, you know, I mean, he only got 7% of the vote. Like, okay, so there was some bad things, like he said we needed a French Putin. Uh, the main campaign poster design was a big Z. Like, these things were, like, obviously, like, <laughs> uh, artless. Uh, but, you know, he did actually win, uh, as I said at the start, he actually did win uh, some very bourgeois areas of some of the main cities in places where, like, the far right has never made a breakthrough. And Ultimately, he has increased. He has helped diversify the, the the far right electorate. So, you know, I think like, of course, it depends on how close the the ultimate result is. You know, I think if Le Pen again only gets like say like, for example, I think if she got like forty percent, then that would be a seen as a bad defeat, and probably would help um, would help Marichal become the effective leader of the far right sooner. I mean, what we saw uh, today, uh, sorry, actually yesterday, is that um, some of the people around Zemmour from different parties, so uh, Guillaume uh, Pelletier, who was the um, deputy leader of the Republicans for the last, for, from like 2019 to 21, uh, who supported Zemmour and was expelled from the Republicans. So really him, uh, her, Marichal, and the former general secretary of the, of the Front National, uh, Nicolas uh, Bay, they wrote a joint column for Le Figaro, which is like the main like bourgeois conservative newspaper, a bit like the Daily Telegraph in England. Some of you this this way now. Um, they wrote a column basically: we need a union of the right for the parliamentary elections uh, against the Islamo leftists, which is Mélenchon, and uh, against Macron. Um, we need to unite the right. And I mean, after all, Zemmour did beat the Republicans. And the Rassemblement National of Le Pen has uh, hardly any MPs. So, you know, I think it's uh, it's certainly possible. But then I also think like, so I, I think it's, there's a lot going on on the right. And also there are other examples in particularly Italy, where actually the post-fascist party Fratelli d'Italia has done exactly the strategy that uh, Marichal advocates, the so-called center-right bloc, now the biggest force within it, are former fascists who talk a lot about World War II. Um, so I think like, uh, the, the, in the, in, because in this election, we did see the Republicans collapse so badly, like they still have a lot of like, you know, we shouldn't like ignore the fact that they still have a lot of like, they have a lot of activists, they have a lot of uh, sitting MPs, they have a lot of organization in the parliamentary elections, you know, they will be more of a force than they were here. Uh, but I think, like, I think the general, I think there is a tendency towards uh, Marichal becoming the the, the the leader of a of a far, of a, a more conventionally bourgeois, but also still very right wing bloc. Uh, and also, of course, there's other factors like the fact that you know, like in 2027, Macron won't be able to stand again, so inevitably the the, the field will be different. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, I think that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think you're. I think it makes it also makes sense to me to focus on the collapse of the the center right because the narrative that I don't know I've seen emerge certainly in in English and French has been a little bit different but it has been this oh we see the continued collapse of the old party system and of course we do but the nuance the the detail is important right we haven't seen the I mean yes you can argue we've seen the collapse of the socialist party but whether you know they get nine percent, or I mean, one you know, two percent is is a humiliation. But 
you know, they're in, in either case, they're not relevant, right? Whereas last time, um, Fillon, right, got around 20%, I seem to remember. Yeah, 20%. And from 20% to, yeah, 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 the last candidate for the center right, the Republicans got around 20%. Now, this time it's 48 which means their campaign funds aren't embursed, which led to some hilarious um, scenes of, of the candidate for the, the center right who said, you know, she's against high taxes and against basically the nanny state, against people who are on welfare, asking her supporters for donations and them calling in and saying, well, I pay enough taxes, I'm not going to give you any more money. I mean, that was hilarious. <laughs> but I think, I think it makes sense to me to focus on, on the collapse of the center right because that, that seems to me to be the story, right, this time around, that um, they got squeezed between the far right and and Macron, who, you know, represents a lot of the positions that you would normally associate with the center right or the parts of the far right, right, especially when it comes to to rhetoric around um, Islam, or as you as you mentioned when I when I joined, the kind of authoritarian response to to protests. Um, the other thing I was wondering about. And this might be a more kind of open-ended question, which is potentially better anyway for, for the winding down, which we were supposed to be doing, is, you know, I wonder to what extent, I mentioned this very briefly uh, in an episode we had a couple of weeks ago in which we touched on the French election. The Fifth Republic has its origins in defeats at the end of empire, failed military coup, uh, desire for you know, a strong man leader to solve the nation's problems, which at that point was the goal. And I wonder to what extent that kind of structurally favors the right in this political configuration. And I don't know the answer to that. And maybe that's, maybe it's just a vibes kind of answer, but maybe it's also more more concrete, right? Because it lends itself to the kind of discourses that, that come more naturally to the right, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I actually think one of the particular ways that plays out is that the question of whether the Rassemblement National has changed, whether the far right has changed, is always entirely premised on the personality of Marine Le Pen individually. So all this kind of rubbish about like, oh, well, she loves cats, or like the posters just have her first name rather than the party name, and she's smiling and not angry, has an absurdly outsized place in the like mainstream presentation, you know, the kind of way in which like media often present the election kind of as entertainment, or they or the kind of like journalistic commentary is kind of um, about the tactics and of the election, uh, a little like we're talking about now, I suppose. But like, so I, I think like, yeah, so it's like, it's very focused on personality and that allows the, um, it means that the the attack against her is kind of frustrated because it's not really about what does the, for, what does it stand for or anything? It's like, is she like as a presentable uh, person? Um, and of course, it's also true that in general, the fact that the president enjoys so much power uh, mean has hastened this authoritarian turn and, enacting reforms which don't have any support in society, like as you mentioned, the uh, the labor law like five years ago. Um, one of the paradoxical effects though is that uh, France Insoumise uh, has, is much stronger than it would be in a, like it's stronger in a presidential election than in other types of election. Also because Jean-Luc Mélenchon is is without question the best uh, orator and most intelligent <laughs> of the of the candidates, and is very impressive in this kind of uh, race. And you know, he uh, he's uh, calling for a um, like a sixth republic to change the, the the political system to get rid of the the presidency. And I think like that kind of I think um, we actually did a Jacobin, uh, we co-hosted a, a event with um, the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and uh, Mediapart, a French media outlet, you can look at it on, on YouTube, it's very interesting, um, where, we, where we kind of talked about this, which is like, it, it's kind of seen from the outside, it's kind of strange, because I guess in like, say, US or, or certainly British politics, we would, we never like kind of talk about like, oh, how would we change the democratic structures of the state? Or like reef, both because France has had these kind of past refoundational processes, even if they weren't particularly democratic, particularly the 1958 uh, one you mentioned. Um, that this actually is kind of, and you know, this second round itself kind of shows the weak, the the poverty of this form of democracy, where we just get two like appalling uh, choices, 
and you know like a, a, a basically a third of the electorate from the first round is basically disenfranchised and probably half of it won't uh, turn out to vote um so uh yeah so i think like um the but the thing is you know if uh, if the Mélenchon success is going to last, then of course it will, the, you know, the, the movement as they call themselves the party uh, is indeed going to have to become somewhat less uh, personalist and focused on, on him individually. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting tension that you raise, right? That he is the one, he succeeds because he has traits which are favored by the configuration that currently exists, but at the same time advocates for changing it quite substantially, right? And I wonder, you know, you raised this earlier about um, the change in in candidates for the for the far right potentially to 2027, and of course the absence of Macron. And I wonder whether that, and I mean, who knows? I don't know if you talked about this earlier. I don't know whether you believe that Mélenchon will run again, but you know, there is there seems to be this looming question as to how the system continues and what it looks like in five years, right? And whether it will, whether you will get the same kind of, you know, candidates or whether these new kind of political cleavages will, will produce other kinds of, of leadership or indeed simply skew more authoritarian towards people who are better, even better at exploiting, you know, the kind of role that the outsized role that the president has in the Fifth Republic. But I think you're, I think you're right to mention that that's, I mean, to be fair, New Zealanders should be familiar with that, right? New Zealanders changed the parliamentary system 25 years ago um, from first past the post to a kind of, what does it call it? What, what is it called? I forget, MMP. 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 Yeah, so basically a German style kind of mixed representation system. Um, so in that sense, might be familiar to people here, but at the same time, I guess it doesn't change the structure of the state fundamentally, which is kind of what Mélenchon is aiming at, hoping for. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, really great questions, Jan. Uh, we, we're going to wrap things up. So I just, I'll, I'll ask both of you guys a very, very uh, broad question. You might say a cliche, uh, but nonetheless, an, an important cliche, I think. We're all watching this election from, from our respective, uh, 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 you know, perches uh all over the world um i wonder you know what what takeaways lessons whatever word you want to use um you know the left or you know more more broadly liberal democracies in general might take from looking at what has happened in, in french politics over the last five years and and what has happened in this election i mean is there something that we can learn from this uh beyond just sort of um being dismayed at the uh the terrible suite of choices that are, that are put before the french people do you want to I start think... us off, Jan, and then maybe we can give David the last word? Uh, <laughs> we should give David the last word. Um, should we be dismayed? Possibly, right? I think it's a good example, and you mentioned this, uh, even you both mentioned this, of how in these kind of systems you are sometimes, not just in the French system, but um, but in, you know, maybe, maybe, this is a, maybe this is a story of, of liberal democracy as a whole, right? You get you get you get forced to choose for um, between two evils, right? And you get in this way. I mean, if I think France is, I think this this you know the the, the vote blowing, the abstentions, the strong the strong abstentions is, in some ways you can you can argue it undermines the system, but it's also what it's supposed to do, right? I think people are much better in France at politicizing their non participation in the system than they are in say the United States or the UK or in Germany, right? I think that's really, really interesting. Um, to what extent we can take any, away anything positive? I mean, I think, you know, David mentioned this, the endurance of France Ensemble between the elections is really, really nice. It seems like the structures are solidifying, which is great. It seems like there may potentially be in the kind of post-mortem for this election, the sense that uh, United Left Bloc might be needed in order to counter what is coming on the right, in order to oppose that in any meaningful sense. Um, I guess that's the best hope, right? I'm not sure whether whether that whether you can build whether you can build on that support, whether you can reach you know a lot of the people that that Le Pen is speaking to, right? Kind of more rural 
um, in particular in the north, northeast voters, working class voters who, you know, haven't been, who, who have been, I think, alienated by the kind of, you know, um, the kind of atomization of, you know, even French neoliberalism in the past couple of decades. I wonder, you know, how do you reach them? What do you do? Um, will structures that, you know, the movement is now building be enough? To, to build on that, to, to mobilize these constituents for the left. I guess we get a hope, right? Yeah, and I, I think that the, the problem is that, of course, like overall and in most countries, we've clearly seen that the kind of, the sort of, um, because of the hollowing out of um, political parties, of mass mobilization in general, uh, although of course there's been some like yellow vests, but of course not corresponding to the, the sort of old codes or structures of the workers' movement. Um, that in general, because the ideological field and level of popular mobilization has lessened, that also has the effect that the kind of anger that is expressed is more likely to be right-wing because ultimately it's more uh, unambitious in what it wants it's like some sort of like return to how things used to be 10 years ago. Like, it's not like she's proposing some sort of bold social program. It's like a, it's like a call for like radical action to like keep stuff the same. And there was some you know, small trimming. And then of course, even the fact that the social program is like tax cuts rather than like, you know, rebuilding a, or like you know, remodeling the economy. Mm. Um, I think though, I, I think that, you know, I think the really important uh, thing, or certainly what <laughs> what matters most to me, is that uh, which is very different things. But um, no, I mean, I, th I, th I think the, uh, the the really interesting thing. I, I spoke to Danielle Obono, who's an MP for France and Sudanese, uh, a couple of days ago, and she was saying like, well, the really interesting thing in in uh, when she was uh, looking at Britain was like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, like such a lovely guy, so softly spoken, and yet all the media were just like calling him this like vicious, evil, like Stalinist and anti-Semite and all this. And like, what was striking was like, she, he is so unlike Mélenchon. And of course, Mélenchon had these like big embarrassing moments, you know, they, when the police raid the office and he shouts, la république, c'est moi. And like, you know, he's, he is very, uh, um, uh, he can be prickly and drawn to temper. He has a certain arrogant and sort of like speaks from a sort of Olympian heights about the world's affairs, which is also the, the magic of uh, Mélenchon. But all of that stuff, all of those condemnations of him being egoistical and divisive, like that is all like total bollocks. Like it doesn't matter for anything. The reason why he's attacked as divisive is because he's seriously left-wing. And all of the, you know, if you read like papers like Liberation or Lobs, these kind of like liberal left um, groupthink publications, which dominate the, the like, you know, the, the, uh, or so a scene to stand for the left in France, they spent months before the election, like tr uh, trying to put forward all these alternative candidates for the left, all of them the same kind of milk toast progressives, kind of vaguely greenish and liberal, but kind of basically compatible with Macron. And the strength of France and Sumides was that it totally refused to be drawn into that kind of stuff, was unapologetic, didn't back down before its enemies in the way that, say, Corbyn did in Britain. It didn't seek a false unity with people who were trying to destroy it. And I think that ultimately, you know, they got a very good result because they were the force that stood up against Islamophobia when no no one else did, or they were the one that stood with uh, uh, um, uncompromisingly together with the yellow vests. Uh, so I think, like, of course, there's a you know a lot of problems in this election too. Like, its vote in the cities was really good, but in smaller communes, not so much. Uh, but I think, like, it's uh, very strongly defended its independence against the kind of like liberal left uh, sphere and I think that that is uh, that's been very important I mean I think even for the parliamentary elections I think it's probably the right thing for them to do to propose unity with the greens and stuff but it's also the right thing to do because they know that the greens will say no I mean yeah. <laughs> 
they should be seen to do that, but they shouldn't compromise on their program at all because ultimately, you know, they got 22% and the Greens got 4%. So, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think they, they are in a strong position at the moment uh, at the level of like local implantation stuff, not so good, but I think probably the best hope is if they get like, uh, a few dozen MPs, let's say, rather than the 17 they currently have, then that itself will help a lot in terms of like giving them a lot more resources and stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think like, I'm always a bit like, you know, like when, when you publish stuff in Jacobin, which was like, oh yeah, actually France Antimese did better than expected. And they did, they, they beat the polling quite considerably. But you get all these people who are like, uh, in the comments and stuff, responding like, oh yeah, but you know, it's just like another heroic failure. But then ultimately, you know, like, the left's history is not made up of like breakthrough electoral victories coming from nothing. It's about building up organization, making your uh, program and your alternatives seem uh, realistic and something people can relate to. And I think Francis Mies also at that level has done, has made a big uh, progress since uh, 2017. So yeah, I think it's not like they're on the brink of, of taking power or something. Uh, clearly not, but I think that they basically, you know, in a lot of countries with similar uh, political traditions to France, the left has just like completely disappeared. And uh, I think uh, what's uh, what's happening there is uh, pretty interesting from that perspective too. Well, I, I think that's a great reminder, a great note to end on, the, the thing to keep in mind that, that even successful movements uh, are, are built on defeats. Uh, as well as victories, and we always have to keep that in mind. Um, David, thanks so much for, for coming along and, and, and giving us your wisdom, and uh, I guess we'll see what happens uh, in the election this Sunday. Um, and, and Jan, thank you again for <laughs> making it uh, partway through, despite despite all my best efforts to, to thwart your, uh, your coming onto the show. <laughs> Very much appreciate it. Um, as always, uh, to you, the listener out there, like, subscribe, check us some money, share it with your friends. If you think people... Uh, that you know who, who aren't particularly informed about what's going on in France, who, who might be interested in the discussion, um, you know, if, if you know anyone, send this to them, get the word out. Um, uh, until then, uh, we will uh, see you uh, later in the week for another episode, and this will be, uh, this, this is it for, for the French election. Okay, thanks. Relentless routines Dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation you hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays You hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate